And if you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Obadiah. It would be helpful as we go through the Minor Prophets to keep that little ribbon in your Bible exactly where it needs to be. Obadiah is a small book, and it's going to be tough to find otherwise. If, however, you forgot your Bible this morning, you can find uh, in the black ESV Bibles that are in the pew pockets in front of you, the book of Obadiah on page 724. If you remembered yours and you don't know where to find Obadiah, check the contents in the beginning of your Bible. It is somewhere close to the middle, although it is very small, so it'll be hard to find. And while it is a small book, the smallest in the Old Testament, although not the smallest book in the Bible, certainly the smallest book in the Old Testament, one chapter, so much so that you don't have to say the chapter number in front of it. You can say Obadiah 2, and we know exactly what you're talking about, even though it is small. It contains a lot of material that is similar to other books. You find a good portion of Obadiah actually replicated either by Jeremiah or Obadiah took it from Jeremiah. Almost without doubt, they borrowed from one another in some form or fashion in Jeremiah 49. This sort of text that speaks judgment against a foreign people is not unfamiliar to the prophets. What happens to be unique about Obadiah is that's the only thing that this book does. It is the one book in the Old Testament that seems to be written to the people of God, but really for a completely separate people. There are oracles like this that you find in Jeremiah and Isaiah, and certainly in Ezekiel, but this one stands alone. It doesn't have any words really to the people of Judah. It doesn't have much in the way of direct analogy to the people of Israel, but it speaks directly to a foreign people speaks directly to the nation of Edom. Edom was, in some sense, sort of the epitome of the enemies of God. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, has this sort of terrible depiction of the Lord. Certainly, we would understand that to be Jesus as trampling on Edom and coming back into Judah with robes stained red from their blood, something that Revelation picks up and extends to all nations as Jesus will trample them in the winepress of his wrath. There is no doubt that Edom would experience God's wrath. They seem to be a natural enemy of the people of Israel, and especially the southern people of Judah, whose territory they rubbed up against. Like other books of the Minor Prophets, we know little about Obadiah. As a matter of fact, we don't even know that Obadiah is actually his name. The name means servant of Yahweh. And so it could very well just be sort of a nickname or a tagline that he's putting at the top of it. It might not even be his real and true name. We're given no dates for the events that are listed here, although it is unlikely that it is anything but the disaster that occurred in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. as Judah was hauled off by Babylon, as we read of even this morning. But we are a little ahead of ourselves, I think. The question becomes... Why are Edom, who's a nation to the south of Israel, touching Judah, but why does Edom get this special treatment? What is it about Edom and Judah, or Edom and Israel in particular, that puts them as natural enemies, as sort of loggerheads with one another? To understand that, we're going to go back just briefly to the book of Genesis. We're going to talk through what happened at the birth of two twins in Genesis 25. Isaac and Rebekah had problems conceiving, and when God opened Rebekah's womb, she conceived and had twins. 
But the twins and her struggled. They were kicking and screaming like kids in the back of a car or kids on an airplane kicking your seat. And she was frustrated about it. And I understand right now women are like, especially those who have carried children before, that's not actually what that's like. I understand that. But for the sake of guys, it's as close as we can get. So it's like a child just screaming and yelling. She, she understands that she wanted to have these children. She longed to have these children. But this was not just normal bickering in the womb, not just normal kicking in the womb. When the children struggled within her, Genesis 25, 22, has Rebecca saying, if it's this way, why is this happening to me? I, I waited for these children. Why does it have to be this way? Why are they fighting? Is it always going to be this way? And God answers one verse later, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve younger. It was this typical flip in Genesis, where it is not the firstborn who gets the blessings of God, but it is the secondborn who gets the blessings of God. Esau is born, first of the twins, and he comes out red, beet red. His brother comes out holding his heel. So, the parents, not thinking of nicer names to name him, name him Jacob, which sounds fantastic to us, but in Hebrew, means simply one who grabs the heel and is a synonym for, or a euphemism for somebody who cheats. It's like naming your child Cheater, which I don't recommend. Jacob sounds better. If you want to name him Cheater, just name him Jacob and no one will know the difference. This birth tends to then be prophetic. Just a couple of verses later, literally three or four verses later, we read about them as they got older. In Genesis 25, same chapter, verses 29 through 34, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. This picture of redness coming back again. The text then tells us, therefore his name was called Edom. What that doesn't tell us is how close the word Edom is to the word for red in Hebrew. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. So he's coming in, he's exhausted, he, he needs to have food, and Jacob's making stew, and he says, no, I'm not going to give you any unless you give me your birthright. Esau said, well, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. He swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And that name Edom sticks, and it is a reminder of how close that name is to red, is a reminder of both the red stew, and it is a reminder of Esau being red, and how Jacob always cheated him. He always clung on to his heel. He always took what belonged to him, including his birthright. Eventually, the two boys did part and go their separate ways. And although there was a building tension in the book of Genesis, when they come back together, they actually get along. They do well in reconciliation. And it is not at all clear how the older will serve the younger will come to pass. Eventually, though, the people who belong to Jacob, the nation of Israel, go down to Egypt and the Lord brings them back up. And as he is leading them into the promised land, he's leading them south 
and around the Dead Sea and to the east side of the Jordan. In order to do that, they must pass directly through the land of Edom. They talk to their brothers and they say, let us pass through. And Edom refuses. And thus it begins, the fighting between the nations. Eventually, Edom will be subjugated by David. We read of this in 2 Samuel 8. The Edomites are subjugated. They are put to work in the salt mines. There are garrisons put up all throughout Edom, and they become basically a vassal state of Israel. They will forever be fighting that vassal status. And what God has prophesied to be true has now come true. Israel, the younger, is domineering over Esau, the older. However, in 586, as many prophets prophesied, destruction comes to Judah. They have been led astray in false idol worship. They've been led astray in bloodshed and in violence. And so God is bringing his vengeance down upon them by bringing Babylon in, and he will haul them away. And as Jerusalem burns and his people go in a single file line in exile to Babylon, Edom rejoices. It is likely that after the fact, they participate in some of the destruction of Jerusalem and pillage what is left. It did not help their younger brother. They did not help those who are in need. It is this final act emblazoned with their pride over Israel. And being that it is pride over Israel, it is most definitely pride even over God that signaled and brought about their own downfall, which is what we have in the prophet Obadiah this morning. Let us go then to read from Obadiah as we will read the fullness of these 21 verses this morning. Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape-gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. 
Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of our God. Let us think through what we might glean from this book this morning. First, let us consider pride's delusion. As we look at the first nine verses, pride's delusion. Delusion. The people of Edom think that they can rejoice over the fall of Israel because they believe that they will escape the same fate. They believe this for three reasons. First, their territory. Anyone who knows anything about military strategy knows that having the high ground is having the best ground. It is much easier to fight downhill than it is to fight uphill. The Edomites did not have great farmland. It was meager at best. It was rocky and it was hilly. But they had two things going for them. First, they had the most natural land bridge in between places like Babylon and Egypt. If you were traveling from east to west and you were not going north, you would have to travel through Edom. This allowed them to be part of that trade route and made it very easy for them to gain wealth from that trade route. And secondly, and most importantly, its rocky, hilly nature allowed them to build fortifications that were strong and raised up giving them a strong military advantage, even though they had very little military. They thought that this military advantage would keep them from the exact same fate that took the Judeans, that burned Jerusalem. In their pride, they considered themselves impregnable to any foreign force that might come upon them. They might not be mighty, but they would be safe. God is not impressed. Instead, what God does... In his word, is not simply give them the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't just say, yes, you have high and strong fortifications, but he increases that. He says, well, what would happen? Let's say you live in the cleft of the rock, your, your lofty dwelling. In verse 4, he says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, let's, let's not even talk about you living in the cleft of the rock and lift it up above the ground. Let's even make you airborne. Let's put you where men can't get you. 
Do you think you'll be safe there? Let's do one better than that. Let's take you all the way up to the heavens, though your nest is set among the stars. Will I not bring you down? Their pride has made them lose their minds. Indeed, they are certainly safe and secure from regular military might. Worldly powers they can resist. How could they possibly be safe from God, who made the mountains with a word, who stretched forth the sky? How could their pitiful fortifications save them from his mighty arm? Friends, what is it that makes you feel safe? So the locks on your doors when you lay your head down at night? The gun in your closet? If the Lord did not, if the Lord sought to do you harm, would they do you any good at all? What gives you financial safety? Your impressive credit score, your Roth IRA, your 401k, your income? Cannot the Lord in a moment take these from you? What gives you peace over your health? Doctor says you're doing well. You try to eat well, exercise, eat apples, keep the doctor away, all that jazz. Cannot God take your life away tonight? Pride, friends, can delude you into thinking that you are safe. Pride in your abilities, pride in your possessions, pride in what you have makes you think that you will be safe from the harms and can delude you into thinking that you were safe even from the debt of your sin. It led Edom to think that nothing could touch them, could bring them down from their lofty heights. But God is not deceived by their pride. And pride will not long mock God. They were secondly deceived by their allies. Obadiah begins by reading the way of thieves. Would they not steal only what they wanted and needed? If people broke into your house, what would you expect to have stolen? You'd expect your TV, perhaps, to be gone, stereo equipment. You'd expect jewelry to be gone, any money you had laying around. I doubt that you're afraid that your seven-foot couch is going to be taken out of your house and run down the street by a couple of dudes. Right? Your couch is going to be there. Why? Because couches are hard to sell and they're really hard to move. What do they steal? Only what they want and what they need, what they can get away with. What do people who come and glean grapes do and gatherers do? They leave some. They can't grab them all, he's saying. But this is not an ordinary robbery, and this is not ordinary thievery. This is vengeance. It is all gone for Edom. They will have nothing left. There's no possessions. There's no fruit. There's no homes. They are utterly destroyed. They might want to turn around and say, but what of our allies Indeed, this is one of the ways Edom protected themselves. They, like some sort of leech, sucked on to the most powerful things around them. Whether it was Babylon or Assyria, they sought protection from those who had greater militaries than them. What of our allies? Can't we be safe with them? God says, I know that you turn to them, but they will not be your allies for long. As with any arrangement, they will only be good to you so long as you are good for them. And at some point... Ravaging Edom will carry more good than honoring that commitment. They have deceived them. Your allies, he says, have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. He says, 
those who ate bread with you. You called them allies. You called them friends. You made commitments with them. You made treaties with them. You sat down and you shared bread. There was nothing more intimate. There was nothing more purposeful than sharing a morsel of food in the Middle East. This signified that you were tied together. And he says, they will betray you. You think you have them as friends. You think you have them as allies. They will turn on you. So friends, do you trust in people? Do you think that you're going to somehow survive in this world because your friends will never, ever possibly let you down? And I want you to know that having trustworthy friends is beautiful and it is sweet. But such friendship, to truly be beautiful and sweet, must be based on the fact that they trust the Lord. Only by knowing true faithfulness of God should we ever consider the unstable ways of men solidified. I have a number of friends that I trust a wonderful wife that I trust. But I only do so because I know that the Lord has worked in them. I know that the Lord has worked in her. I trust them because I trust the Lord's work in them. If we do not build on the Lord, it is all sinking sand. They trust that their allies will save them. Their allies will not. God will use the very ones closest to them to bring their destruction. And third, they lean on their people. In their pride, they lean on their own abilities. Edom did apparently have some of the best and the brightest and the wisest people in the Middle East. We know this. One of Job's friends is from Taman, which is even mentioned out here in verse 9 as a major city in Edom. He was the one who gave wise counsel, apparently. Although, when you read the book of Job, you realize that that is not true. The end of the book of Proverbs, both Proverbs 30 and 31, the princes that are mentioned there are likely Edomite princes. They were known for the wise men. But God will remove both understanding and the wise men from their midst. They have been so deceived by their pride, and they have so trusted in their land, and God will take away all semblance of wisdom from them. Though they think themselves wise, they have become nothing but fools. This is the way it must be. For true wisdom only comes through fear of the Lord. The nation of Edom, in pride, has been utterly deceived. They have failed to understand that the fall of Judah was not due to the alignment of worldly powers. It wasn't due to military might and strength. It was not due to political maneuvering. It wasn't because they angered Babylon, but it was because they angered God. So there was no security for Judah. And therefore, there shall be no security for Edom. How can rocks make you secure when God made the rocks? How can the loftiest of heights make you, sec make you secure when God literally has to descend to get to you? How can allies make you secure? when God can move them as easily as stream in the water of his hand. It was all delusion. This is the great problem with pride. Its grand insidiousness is that it deludes you into thinking that you are well. Not the outside world. The outside world can tell that you are deluded, but you cannot. It is the worst of sicknesses. Other sicknesses are not so simply dismissed. If you lose an arm, you can't just yell out, it's merely a flesh wound, and go on with your day. 
there's a reason why that itself seems ridiculous and silly because we know that that's not how people act. Pride is the sickness that assures you you are well. Pride is the insanity that makes you and leads you to believe that you alone are sane. Friends, don't be deluded by your pride. Do not give an inch. Kill it and live. Pride's deceit. And secondly, pride's deeds. In verses 10 through 14, the question becomes then, what exactly did Edom do that was so bad? I think that we are helpfully shown here that it's not so much what Edom did that was wretched. It's what Edom didn't do that was so wretched. I didn't physically destroy Judah. Judah's downfall was not because of them. They didn't physically exile Judah. The exile was not because of them. They didn't physically burn down the temple in Jerusalem. That falls on the hands and the heads of the Babylonians. Yet all the same, it seems clear that Obadiah considered the intent of Edom the exact same as those actions. Verse 10 tells us that Edom did violence to their brother. Even now, he considers them a brother. He says, you had an obligation to the nation of Judah. Although you haven't been related, though that relationship goes back a long way, you still had an obligation to your brother to protect him, to watch out for him. You failed in that. You did violence to him. You had obligations that you refused to meet. He goes on to mention, though, that that violence in verse 11, that they stood aloof. They didn't enter the fray. They weren't part of the action. They were on a side. It wasn't Jacob's, but they didn't actually get down into the muck and the mud. Others captured their wealth. Others entered the gate. Others pillaged Jerusalem. They weren't them, but notice what he says. You were like one of them. Friends, at times we, we can pacify our consciences and ourselves by assuming that as long as we don't do things, we're not guilty of things. Even if we cheer on others in their sin, say, well, I, I don't engage in that. Although we might laugh, we might cheer on others who do such things. Paul was not sinless because he held coats and not stones. We celebrate the sinful actions of others, or even, and this is important, even if you do nothing to help victims, you will not be cleared before the Lord. We have, even if just in our hearts, done violence to our neighbors, we have, by not acting on their behalf, blood on our hands. We're not just passed by in judgment, for we are not just called on to be neighbors. But as Christ said, you are to prove you are a neighbor. When the priest passed by, the man who was robbed and the Samaritan stopped. The question that Jesus asked is not who is his neighbor, but rather who proved himself to be a neighbor. And you are to go and do likewise. Do not fool yourself, friends. Do not stand aloof from the suffering of others. It is not enough simply to say, I didn't cause their pain. It is not enough simply to say, I did no harm. When you say, I did no harm, another way of saying that is, I did no good. 
The Edomites waited perhaps until the destruction had occurred. They gloated over the exiles who were taken away in chains. They did nothing to help them. And then, and only then, did they swoop in on the city to destroy, to gather what plunder they could, and refuse to help anyone who was there hurting. If you ever get a chance to learn German, you learn some fantastic words. German has a way of putting words together for really random things. There's Kummerspeck, which is weight that you gain from comfort eating. You've got a bad day and you go home and you eat a couple pints of ice cream, you put on some Kummerspeck. There is inner Schweinehund. Schweinehund. When you feel lazy, it is your inner pig dog is what that means. You've got an inner pig dog that doesn't want to do work. It wants to just kind of lay around and be lazy. That is your, that is your Schweinerhund. One of the best known German phrases in English is schadenfreude or schadenfreude. Is when we laugh, find happiness, joy at the pain of other people. It's not always bad. It's fine to gloat over people when their sports teams lose. It's part of having and rooting for teams in sports. But that's not what oftentimes happens. We have schadenfreude when we gloat over the pain of our enemies. Edom has the very thing here as they gloat over the pain of their brother Jacob. We are a country that seems built on schadenfreude. We love to watch others suffer. We love to watch others, especially those who we consider enemies, go through difficult times. Are you happy when bad things happen to people you dislike? Do you rejoice in the death of the wicked? God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you? When people who do not align politically with you and people who do not align morally with you when they die. Do you find joy in that? Do you rejoice in the fall of those who you oppose? Are you happy when bad things happen to those you hate? Friends, this is not the way of love. We can and ought to and will indeed rejoice in God's justice. But friends, we can do that without gloating over the death and over the pain and over the suffering of the unrepentant. And we certainly do not need to gloat on the downfall of others in this world. Such is the attitude of the prideful and the arrogant. It is the deed of those who have nothing but arrogance in their heart because they believe that it will not happen to them. This is the attitude of those who think they will never enter into judgment, but they will, as God clarifies in our third and final point this morning with pride's debts. Pride's debts. The day of the Lord will indeed come. It will come upon all nations and it will surely come upon Edom. That debt is made here with a phrase we call lex talionis, which means the law of retribution. What, has, what you have done will be paid back to you. God will give them precisely what has happened. He says, your deed shall return on your own head. In verse 16, he says, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. This means likely that the Edomites not only traveled to Jerusalem, 
They traveled to Jerusalem, walked up the hill in Jerusalem, sat down on the pinnacle of Jerusalem, and chugged with one another. They enjoyed a festival. They cheered and sang songs and rejoiced with one another as they drank to the downfall of Judah and the downfall of Jerusalem. And God takes that and he says, I will make you drink. If you want to have a drink, friend, I will provide you a drink. A typical metaphor for God's wrath is making people drunk on his wrath. I will make you drink my wrath down to the dregs. I will make you drink it down to the very bottom. And just as you get drunk off of alcohol, so you will be drunk off my wrath. You will be so filled with it, it will overcome you. Another part of that debt is seeing the absolute foolishness of what you were gloating over. It's not just that God is going to bring that back down on their head, but he is very clear. You gloat because Judah was removed. Don't you know that I will send them back? Don't you know that I will be faithful to my word? Don't you know that Jacob and Joseph and all of my people will one day enter and inhabit the land? That Benjamin, that Ephraim, will take the land that I have long promised to them. It will be theirs because I was the one who promised it to them. You're rejoicing over something that is temporary, but your destruction will not be. It will be full and it will be complete. The land will be the people of God's, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Friend, let this be a good reminder for you. Those who would laugh at your downfall, those who would take joy in you falling on your face, those who take joy at Christians in general doing things that cause their own downfalls and seeing them hurt and harmed in this world, those who celebrate your loss, don't fret them worry about them. God will allow those who suffer for his sake to be made great in his kingdom. So it was done to the prophets before you. So it will be done for you. Suffer for the name of Jesus and your reward will be great. This, what we read here in Obadiah, is the debt of pride. Pride makes announcements and takes actions that demand a response from God, that demand a payback. Pride writes checks. And one day God will cash those checks and your debt will come due. If you think that you're something, if you walk and talk with pride and arrogance, if you find that you are superior in every step you take, there will come a day when you will have to put up or shut up before God. And our God loves to humble the pride of the proud. Is this you, friend? I beg you to look at your life and ask yourself, is this you? When others think differently to you, do you immediately consider them wrong or sinful or immoral or a heretic? Do you think that you don't need others in this church but that others in this church really, really need you. If you teach, are you not willing to learn? If you lead, are you not willing to follow? If you argue, are you not willing to listen? God understands well what it's like to receive the vengeance of the prideful. He knows that pain well. 
For Jesus suffered just like Israel. He was mocked by the nations with a fake crown and robe. He was mocked by his brothers as they wagged their heads and walked past him, saying he claimed to be the Son of God. Let's see if God will save him now. He was mocked by the very rulers in Jerusalem, saying if he is a king, let him come down for the cross. He was exiled outside of Jerusalem and suffered the shame and the pain of death for his own people. And God did not forget him. But rather, he exalted him above everyone else. Not because Jesus was filled with pride. Not because Jesus sought to exalt himself. But precisely because Jesus humbled himself to death and death on a cross. He did that for our debts, for our sins. For in our pride, we are always sinful before God. Psalm 73, 3-11 rightly describes us when we look at the arrogant, when we seek to be arrogant, and even when we are arrogant. There the psalmist writes, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Don't seek to be as the arrogant. They might seem like they win. They might seem like they get away with it. Walk like Jesus in the world. We are called to walk in humility, so let us do so. Do not think of yourselves or of anyone who you follow as the sources of all goodness and knowledge. Lest it be Jesus, for such is pride. Do not rejoice at the downfall of people. That is simply pride that befits the wicked of the world, not those who follow Jesus. And do not rejoice in the evil of others. For the measure which you measure shall likewise be measured to you. Friends, walk humbly, speak humbly, think humbly. The world loves to tread on the humble. But our God will raise you up. And although pain and suffering and shame because of your humility might be your lot in this world, you know that God will do well by you. So by faith, you can say, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Father, how many warnings and scriptures do we have about our pride it is the downfall of our souls, the downfall of nations, the downfall of humanity. Yet we are so easily deceived by it. Help us to see our humility. Not that you might humiliate us, but to strengthen us in the faith so that we may walk rightly before you in all things. Make us low in the sight of the world that we may be exalted before you. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.